This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Just a note that this episode contains some mature language. What's good, Chicago? How y'all doing tonight? Hi, hello, good evening, Chicago. Thank y'all for coming out to to kick it with us tonight. Um, This is our first live show, IRL, in two years. Crazy, right? We have missed y'all. I mean, I'm still fairly new. I don't know y'all, but y'all seem like my Barker. Oh, yeah. Y'all might have noticed that there are some new faces up here. This is a new code switch, so as the man says, allow us to reintroduce ourselves. As y'all may know, I am Gene Dumby. What's good? Woo! To my right. Hi, I'm B.A. Parker. It's a pleasure to meet y'all. Give it up for Parker. Y'all probably heard her on the podcast over the last couple of months, the last few episodes. And over on the far right, not far right like that, but like on the far right, like over there. Well, Lori, introduce yourself to the people. This is the first time I'll meet her, for real, for real. He had to set me up like that. Hi, y'all. I'm Lori Lizarraga. I am... So proud and excited to be here with y'all tonight. Lori is the newest member of our co-Swiss Troika. Um, We're so amped that you're with us. Thank you, Gene. We're so amped that y'all are with us. The live show has a theme, and tonight's theme is home. Mm -hmm. We've been thinking about that a lot, because as y'all know, the last couple years have been a lot. We've reoriented ourselves to home, what we do at home, what happens at home. Where and what is home? I mean, we have moved, we have lost loved ones, we have built new families, all of that. And because the definition of home has changed so much for so many of us, well, we're going to do a little unpacking of that tonight, of course, with a lot of amazing guests, a few of whom are already on stage with us. Chicago's own Kaina. Make some noise for Kaina, y'all. And the goobs. Kind of say, say what's good to your city. Hey, Chicago. How Irving are Park you? in the house. Yeah. Give it up for Irving Park, right? It's Irving Park, right? It's Irving Park. It's Irving Park. Okay, it's Irving Park. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, Kayana and her crew are going to be providing the musical morsels throughout yum, yum, the yum, show, yum. and they'll close out with a little concert tonight. Ew, ew, ew. It's going to be great. So, speaking of home, Lori, <laughs> who is this basketball team size family that we see right here? They are not basketball team size in stature, <laughs> but they would really appreciate you saying that. But yeah, yeah, I got a lot of people. This is my family. I'm the middle of five kids, uh, and you're looking at what I consider to be my home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and where is home? Yeah, well, you know, I feel like it's not necessarily a particular place necessarily. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Texas. I was born in Louisiana. My dad's family is from Mexico. My mommy's from Ecuador. And somehow my family ended up in Waxahachie, Texas. Give it up for Waxahachie. Waxahachie in the house. So then, Lori, uh, what do you consider home? I feel like a lot of immigrant families can relate to Mm. this, right? Like, I have family all over the country. And so because of that, I feel like home is less a zip code or a place, and it's more whenever we're together. My family, my siblings, my baby nephew, wherever we are when we're together, that's home. Oh. (laughs) Y'all quit messing. All right, so next next up, we got this football team-sized family up here. We are a formidable bunch. Formidable bunch. It's a formidable bunch. All right. uh, Though I was born and raised in Baltimore, this is my ancestral, it's my family, our ancestral home in Cresswell, North Carolina. Cresswell, North Carolina? Probably not. Cresswell, North Carolina? No. No, because the population is only 207. Oh, 207 people (laughs) in Cresswell. (laughs) And they're all pictured here. They're They're all all in this picture. picture. They're all in this picture. (laughs) But yeah, like my maternal great grandfather and his brother-in-law built this house wow. in the early, in the late 1940s, and unlike Lori, I was raised an only child. But my shout out to the only, only children—they children. don't know how to share. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> 
Uh, but my grandmother uh, had nine siblings, and my grandfather oh my had God. eight siblings. So I have 38 second cousins. Jesus, God Just damn. a few. Just a few. And, I mean, that's, there's a lot more third and fourth cousins. And, you know, in, in our families, that just means cousin. That doesn't mean, you know, yeah, doesn't yeah, mean yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, like, like, like any big family, like, you know, you love them. They also kind of work your nerves. But that's what big families do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have spent so much time with my gigantic family on this farm in the middle of, the no- of nowhere mm-hmm. in North Carolina and surrounded by octogenarians, <laughs> uh, which could explain why I sound like an angry southern baby. But <laughs> Who knows? Y'all know those jokes about how you can tell when a black child was raised by their grandparents. Like, you ask them how old they are, and they're like, well, I'll be five and a half come July, should the good Lord see fit. That's Parker. It really is, though. You know what? That's rude, but that's not wrong. It's 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 not not wrong. It's not shade. I'm just saying. It's it's true. (laughs) It's so true. All right, so we got a really dope show for y'all tonight with a bunch of guests from Chicago. Wait, 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 wait. Wait. Oh, I know. That's right. Yeah, Gene. What happened? What are we talking about? What about your homes? Come on, man. Why are you in my business, though? That's literally our job. Our job is to be nosy. Okay. Actually. Fair enough. We're journalists. I'm going to gush a little bit. Okay. So, this is home for me. Uh-huh. So, and I'm going to try not to get emotional up here. So, today is my son's one-year birthday. First birthday. Happy um, birthday, honey bunny! Happy birthday, baby. Um, that is my Pooh Bear, slash, uh, a.k.a. Dookie Ellington, a.k.a. Flemmy Martin, a.k.a. Drewell Santana. Um... He's 24 pounds, but he has, like, reoriented the gravity of our universe, of our emotional universe in the last year. Um, So home for me is, like, all the routines that we have. I'm sure that's true for a lot of y'all, right? When you think of home, when you actually think of, like, your childhood, you think of, like, what Sunday morning felt like, right? And so we're making that stuff up right now. So our routines, not to be all Catholic about it, right, but those routines have become, like, rituals. So, you know, in the morning, before we get ready to daycare, you know, we do our little two-step to Soul For Real, you know what I'm saying? He loves Soul For Real. Um, Oh, he gonna be an old baby like me? Yeah, like you. I didn't say there's nothing wrong with it. I'm just saying, you know what I'm saying? Um, you know, bath time is sacrosanct, 6.30 every day. Um, well, then we got to get this show going so that yeah, you can man. get back for bath time and to celebrate. Yeah, we just want to turn up this weekend. We're going to turn up this weekend. I mean, you can still be popping bottles. See? I can be corny. No, I can be corny like you. Gene. No, I, I like that. Like you. I'm going to get her back for that one. I'm going to get her that, back for though. that one. That was good, Parker. Okay, so enough about us. For tonight's show, we really do have a dope lineup of guests from Chicago. Later in the show, Gene and I are going to talk to creators and stars of the critically acclaimed HBO Max comedy, Southside! Let's go! It's funny as hell. Then all three of us will answer your questions uh, as part of one of our favorite segments for Ask Code Switch. But we're going to start the night off with a little poetry. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, let's do this. I Chicago, give it up for Jose Olivares. Hello, Chicago. My name is Jose Guadalupe Olivares. The title of this poem is Ode to Tortillas. There's two ways to be a Mexican writer that we've discovered so far. You can be the Mexican writer who writes about tortillas, or you can be the Mexican writer who writes about croissants (laughs) instead of the tortillas on their plate. Can you be a Mexican writer if you're allergic to corn? There's two ways to be a Mexican writer that are true and tested. You can write about migration, or you can write about migration. Can you be a Mexican writer if you never migrated, if your family never migrated? There's two ways to be a Mexican writer. You can translate from Spanish, or you can translate to Spanish, or you can refuse to translate altogether. There's only one wound in the Mexican writer's imagination, and it's the wound of the chancla. It's the wound of Bidia being sold out at the taco truck. It's the wound of too many dolores and not enough dollars. It can be argued that these are all chanclazos. Even death is a chanclazo. There's only one miracle gifted to Mexicans, and it is the miracle of never running out of cheap beer. It's the miracle of never running out of bad jokes. There's infinite ways to eat a tortilla made in the ancient ways by hand and warmed on a comal, 
made with corn or with Taco Bell plastic. What about flour tortillas? Flour tortillas count if you ask San Antonio. My people, I am Polly with the tortillas. You can eat tortillas with your hands or roll them up and dip them in caldo like my mom does. You can eat them with a fork and knife like my bougie cousins do. What bougie cousins? I made them up for the purpose of this poem. You can eat tortillas and tacos or warmed up by microwave and drizzled with butter. Tortillas con arroz, tortillas con frijoles. Tortillas flipped by hand or tortillas flipped with a spatula. Tortillas with eggs for breakfast. Tortillas fried and sprinkled with sugar for dessert. Hard shell tortillas. Gluten-free tortillas for our mixed family. <laughs> We are still discovering new ways to fold a tortilla, to cut a tortilla up to transform a tortilla into new worlds, to feed each other with tortillas. My people, if I have children, I will teach them about tortillas, but I'm sure they'll want McDonald's. <laughs> Jose Olivares, everybody. Wow, wow, wow. Hey. All right. All right, so Jose, tell us about your poem. Wow. Uh, so that poem is called Ode to Tortillas. I wrote it after eating huevos rancheros for breakfast one day. <laughs> and I was trying to think to myself, what am I going to write about today? And I was like, how come I never write about tortillas? Tortillas is something that I eat all the time, and yet it never found its way into my writing. And so that was my challenge. was like, how can I write about tortillas in a way that doesn't feel cliche to me, that doesn't feel like I'm just sort of being like, and now, here's some Mexican thing, you know what I mean? Like, how can I do it in a way that felt real to me and with something at stake? And I feel like from the very first lines of Ode to Tortillas, hearing you say you're a Mexican writer, like right off the top, it's beautiful to hear that pride, but it also sounds like there's a little bit of inner conflict maybe, Yeah, for me, part of the challenge of being a writer is like, how do we talk about these things? How do I write about these things that are close to me without making a spectacle out of it, right? How do I continue to treat these things that are important to me, right? The theme is home, that are home to me with the amount of gravity and respect that they deserve. Yeah, that struggle to be authentic without being like a stereotype. I think you can hear that for sure. Yeah, and like who, who gets to say what is authentic. Exactly. Yeah, because I, like, it's influenced by like where we come from, where we grow up, and like what is home. And for Jose, that's right here. <laughs> hey. hey. Calumet City. Because I was going to ask, like, how has, because you no longer live in Calumet City. I don't. That's all right. But, like, like, is your definition of home changing? Yeah, I mean, I had to... So I live in Jersey City now, which is not also, only... Also, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's not only not Calumet City, it's not Chicago, it's not the Midwest. There's no great lake nearby. You know what I mean? Like, not even Lake Ontario or something like that. Hey, we got, uh, we got the Hudson. We have the Hudson River. There's water, the Atlantic Ocean... You know what I mean? But Lake Michigan is special. I used, that was my compass. I always knew where I was based on like where I was in relationship to the lake. Um, but for me, I really had to make peace with like, life is going to take me in different places. As long as I'm surrounded by the people that I love and I stay true to those people, then I will always feel at home. But speaking of which, all right, so you have a new book of poetry coming out in February. It's called Promises of Gold. Hey, yeah. The cover art is so good. And it's about the many people you've loved, and not just romantic loves, but your friendships, and those really important lifelong childhood friendships, and friends you made along the way that are important in your life. You said, Jose, that there's a poem in this book that illustrates that really well. You mind reading a little bit of that for us? Yeah, of course. Thank, Thank you. you for asking. <laughs> Uh, this poem is called Mercedes Says She Prefers the Word Discoteca to the Word Club. 
Give me words that sing. Ojalá is three chickens laying brown eggs. Hope has its own music, but it's missing an accordion. My friends are up to their usual shenanigans, drinking good wine and being sad. My friends don't get into trouble. Trouble wears sombreros and calls it a costume. My friends are traviesos y malcriados y sinvergüenzas. Let me translate. DJ Cash Era is making the wall sweat. Slow jams crawl through the speakers, and our hips move like someone spilled syrup over the night. Mercedes is right. I'm always down to go to the discoteca, a word that spins on the tongue like a disco ball. Keep your clubs. Cops carry clubs, and in this poem, there are no police. Someone spilled syrup over the night. It was us. The moon is a chicken singing, ojalá, ojalá, ojalá. So beautiful. Thank you all so much for having me. I love you, Chicago. Y'all give it up one more time for Jose Alivarez. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR NPR podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Hi, Jean. Welcome back. Hello, Parker. Thanks for having me back. Oh, now we're using our NPR voices. Support your local public radio station, Bob. Um, all right, so... At first, HBO Max's Southside seemed like it's going to be a comedy, a workplace comedy about two friends who work at a rent-to-own store on the south side of Chicago. But very quickly, it becomes clear that the show has a much wider, more absurd lens, and all the shenanigans are set in and filmed in one of the country's most historic and vibrant black enclaves. Here's a trailer. Life has dealt me some shitty cards, but with this, I'm about to play a royal flush. We're about to be venture capitalists. Mm-hmm. On the south side. Adventure capitalists. Venture capitalists. Our way is better because we're taking people's money on an adventure. That's a nice little hustle. Dude, he's selling popcorn. Get your tongue out of his butt. I damn. I diggity dodge the chap while wiggly niggly loading up the cup of popcorn bag. We got popcorn for a dollar. All right. <laughs> Give it up for first Sultan Salahuddin and Diallo Riddle. Yeah, man. They should have never let us on NPR. <laughs> we about to get the whole thing shut down. Never. Let's son. do it. Let's do it. 
Don't get us canceled. Now, let's, just, let's just get this out there. Let's just get this out there. So we are proud that the show yes. is so Chicago. Mm-hmm. So Chicago, right? Uh-huh. And let me say that all the series regulars and all the creators and all the writers, with one exception, are from Chicago. That one exception is me. I did grow up in Atlanta, Georgia. But, but. I will say that his brother... And everybody else on the show is not even just from Chicago. They are from the South Side. Indeed. They're from the South Side. And if I might add, Diallo has been in our lives for so long. He is, (laughs) he's he's getting Chicago pass. Like, he knows. We're going to come, come back to that. We'll we'll come back. Look, I'm ready for it. I can can feel the tension. I can feel the tension, Gene. You say that now. All right, so I want to get into your show. Because what I love about the show, it's like The Simpsons or Parks and Recreations where the character roster runs so deep. And so, like, I know you got your shady cops, you got your board retail workers, you got your politicians, and these are people that seem so specific. And I, you know, Sultan, you are from Southside. Yeah, I am. I'm from the south side of Chicago. Gresham, right? Gresham. Auburn, Gresham area. <laughs> For those that you know, 8200 used to get chased by all of the gangs, but that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> but so were any of the characters based on anyone? Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that was really important to us, and we can attest to this in the writing room, is we wanted to make sure that the characters were based on authentic Chicago personalities. It was really important for us to make sure that we made this show as authentic to Chicago as possible. And one of the things were to make sure that we had some of the funniest people in our lives who were from Chicago to be on the show. So you'll see a lot of characters that are, you know, may not traditionally be fit in a mold, but they are funny to our lives. Yeah, I mean, a couple of quick things. One, uh, we grew up big fans of The Simpsons, so yeah. any comparison to Springfield, that is the style that we, we wanted to make the Southside yeah. Springfield. That's number one. Second thing, yeah. this idea comes from real life. In real yeah. life, uh, for those of you who've watched the show, Quincy, That's right. uh, one of the twins, the one who plays the manager of the store, mm-hmm. he worked for Rena Center in real life. 16 years. You know? Yeah. Wow. And 16 he was years. Oh, in it wasn't a short amount of time. And he would regale us with these stories <laughs> oh my God. of, like, the messed up things he had to do at working at Renner Center. He would pull up in front of my mama's house in a Renner Center truck, like, what y'all doing? I'd be like, no, nobody wants to work. see that truck pull up. You right. know what I mean? And so, you know, he would talk about Replevins, which is yep. a version of what whatever a Renner Center version of a repossession is. You know, that's what he would do. And it was, it was, it was funny, and it was dark, and we were like... Let's do a dark humor yep. show Absolutely. that has elements of The Simpsons and a show called Trailer Park Boys that some people might know about. Yeah. Like, just sort of like, yeah, thank you. Shut it's a, I didn't work on it, but that, that's, that's what <laughs> it is. Did I. You know, like that's that's where these stories came from. And when we took it out, you know, it 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 was immediately like, oh, we're going to be able to sell this show because this is a point of view that Hollywood doesn't always get right. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is true working class Chicago. This is not like some effete stuff. So. Yeah, and one of the beautiful problems. things, if I may dovetail on that, Go that's a college it. word I used, um, <clears throat> was that uh, we could use Renner Center as a vehicle to explore the city and see the different sides of Chicago. And I think as you've seen season one and season two, we were able to execute that. So this has been a, a wonderful journey for us. Because yeah. one thing that I'm curious about, because on Code Switch... Uh, we have talked very openly about how we think about how we need to explain things to the audience. Mm -hmm. Or whether we should, right? Yeah, Yeah. and like, how do you balance like your love for Chicago and specifically like black Chicago things, like like stepping culture and Mm -hmm. things like that and with making sure us non-Chicagoans can get the joke? Let let, let me hop in on this one. Please do. As somebody who has uh, been working in this business for over 10 years now, I, I, I will say right off the bat, there's nothing worse than having to explain comedy. Oh. Nothing worse. Mm. You, you, Did you get the joke? You no. Get it? <laughs> and by the way, we've, we've sat in the room with executives when they read one of our scripts, and they're not on this show, but on some other shows, and they've been like, we wrote a whole episode that took place one time for another show. It took place in the Black Mall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and he's, he, you know. Yeah, man. And I, I worked at the Chick-fil-A in the Black Mall, Philly. <laughs> we all know what that is, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Back in the day, if there was more than one foot locker in the mall, yes. it was the Black Mall. Absolutely. Evergreen <laughs> Plaza, for those of you who know. No, every city has one. Yeah. Every city has one. But, you know, an executive who was not black. Ever white. black. He was like, well... Guys, we want to write something grounded. Is there really such a thing as a black mall? Come on. Let man. me tell you, there yeah. is. 
we knew at that point that show was going to have some hurdles that were going to be very hard to get across. No, because you don't want to ever have to explain your humor. And and Bashir and I both come from large black families, so we have this tradition of just like you know making the people around the dinner table laugh. And when we have our writers' room, we try to recreate that. You know what I'm saying? And so we don't spend any time in our writers' room asking the question, "What do you think people are going to get it?" We figure if we're laughing at it, our audience will too. And I think that's why the authenticity is so easy to come across. Right. Okay. So. I actually want to talk to you about that. So, Parker's from Baltimore. I'm from South Philly, right? Okay. And so we were talking a lot about how we feel some type of way about okay. the way our cities... How y'all feel? Talk to us about that. What's our going cities, on you know, are portrayed... What's happening? So our cities are portrayed a certain way in popular right. culture. You know what I mean? Like, especially black cities. Familiar with that. Very familiar. You know familiar. what I mean? And so, uh, you know, we were just talking about, like, how we feel, you know, like, a little sensitive about those portrayals. You know what I'm saying? Philly, in my case. <laughs> I mean, at least now y'all got Abbott Elementary. That's true. We got Abbott Elementary. Well, I, you know, no, I think... all we got is The Wire. All they got is The Wire. That's true. That's true. Ooh, The Wire. There's a romantic comedy. It's full of laughs. So obviously, like, Chicago, though, Chicago... Like in the discourse, you know, I mean, Chicago's like a shorthand, you know what I'm saying? Fox News is like Chicago. Yeah. Like, there's like a, a whole kind of stuff they're trying to signal to. So I'm curious about like how y'all, how that informs the way y'all writing about well, black okay. Chicago. I'll, I'll tell you a quick mm-hmm. anecdote. The, uh, there was a time I was getting into a, a ride share after we had been shooting late one night, mm-hmm. and I get into the, into the car. I'm really tired, but like the, uh, the driver was like, hey man, I hear y'all are doing a comedy about the South Side. Uh-huh. And he said it like mad aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, oh no, I don't have time. I don't have the energy for this right I'm now. I'm trapped, brother man. I was like, one star. But he was like, was he asking my job? Was he like, no, I was like, but no, but then he was like, he was like, yeah, I heard you're doing a comedy about the South Side. He was like, thank you. You know, he was like, so many people get this wrong. And, yeah. you know, it's just like, there's so, like he said, so many famous people, you know, from Bernie Mac and, 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 and Robin Harrison, like yes. so many. Funny, like the legacy of the South Side doesn't get out there the same way that Bill Murray and the you know the North Side is out there. You know what I'm saying? So we just feel like it's so important for us to lay it out because when you meet people from Chicago, they're never talking like like you said, like the news people. Like they they you know we we love the South Side. You know what I'm saying? People want to get back. You talk to you know. Chicago transplants in Atlanta and L.A. and Philly. Mm-hmm. Like they're always like, man, I love Chicago. I can't wait to get back. So we wanted to have that joy expressed on the show. Absolutely. I also think that when you go to other places, and some of you have experiences, when you tell them where you're from, they're like, Chicago, how'd you survive? <laughs> how'd you make it here in Iowa? Well, I took a bus. But the reality is, is that it was really important to us, and Diablo can attest to this, is that in the, in the writing room, we thought it was really important to show a side of Chicago that isn't often seen, talked about, felt, or heard, and doing it through the medium of humor. And so... Uh, we took it very personal that there are, there are a lot of things that are said about our city mm-hmm. that, you know, that is one perspective, but that is not the whole piece of the pie. That's maybe 10% of it. The other 90% is love, family, fun, sports, you know, uh, coming together and growth and community. I mean, I was watching on Media Takeout last week. It was all kind of brothers in red and black jackets that was on the L downtown and they were just standing there to protect to make sure citizens weren't getting hurt and getting beat up because there was a lot of violence so that's the kind of stuff that you don't really hear about on the news but that's the kind of stuff I'm proud of so that's what's up so like I loved the one there was one episode of the show in particular that was an ode to Ferris Bueller's Day Off yeah, yeah. Bre- Bre- Brenda and an iconic Chicago movie yes. that's right and it, and, and it was intentionally set yeah. so that we could talk about, you know, the things that happened in a John Hughes film, but yeah. from, the, from the black lens, and specifically from the black female lens. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. we're proud that our writer's room is actually majority uh, black female. Give it up for that. <laughs> Ladies That's are exactly. taking over, son. Yeah. That's right. Because we're about Very like, talented writers. Because, like, here's the clip of the South Side version. Oh, here we go. But we can't listen to a lot of it because it's cursing. A lot of it's cursing. NPR. This car, don't even care about it.
scene only took 11 takes. When I first saw the episode, I was like, oh, it's a Ferris Bueller episode. I was like, how are they going to do the scene with the car? I'm not going to drive a car out the side of the window. I think we shot it in reverse. Yeah. 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 You know, that's one of the fun... We're, we're, we're movie nerds at the end of the day. Yeah. So, you know, we're like, we... we take all the stuff that we would have learned in film school had we had the money to attend film school. Oh, yeah. yeah. We apply it to the... Uh, I mean, like, in season three, we have a whole episode basically dedicated to uh, Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, you know, because... Yeah! yeah man, we, all ain't ready, we wanted to show ready. Lower Whacker. We wanted to show... So yeah. the same way we, you know, did a Ferris Bueller, we... we you, you, you'll see it. You'll like it. The through line of the show was, like, Side hustles. There's always people like sort of Absolutely. trying to get by or trying to get over. So like, why did y'all decide to make the show about side hustle so much? Because that's authentic to Chicago. I mean, I, I don't my 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 mailman, the 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 guy who worked at the corner store. They all sold stuff on the side. I think that's synonymous to Chicago lifestyle. You can have the nine to five. I have a friend who uh, works for CTA and cuts hair on the side. Mm-hmm. So like, why are you a super the train? Yeah, you know <laughs> the side of the train. <laughs> You get them all, 63rd. No. But, uh, <laughs> Come in, Cottage Grove. As the train's coming, hurry up, brother. We got to get this fade in. No, but... Uh, By point, the way, this is what the writer's room is like. <laughs> it is so and then we write that character. <laughs> hey, is he cutting hair again? Yeah. Uh, but the reality behind it is, in, in, in the life of Chicagoans, on the, uh, you, can, you can have a very glamorous career and make, make six figures. That does not stop you from trying to better your life and improve your life, uh, whether it be a side hustle. And, that, or, and that's a Chicago thing. But that also, you know, you guys are from, from other cities, too. Like, you know, South Philly. You know, I'm from Southwest Atlanta. You could be from South Central, South yeah. Bronx. We always joke, why do black people always want to live south of the city? I don't know what that's about. <laughs> we, need, we need to unpack that one day. But, like, you know, look, South Side, you can watch it and be from any community yeah, and, and hopefully enjoy it. We try to make things very un- universal right. in their specificity. But if you're from, you know, Chicago, you you just get that extra little bit. You know what I mean? So, you know, the day the Jordans drop is very that specific. That is such a good... <laughs> very specific. There's an episode so, yeah, about right. the day the new Jordans come out and all the cops are like, here we go. Right. Uh, <laughs> they're like, no vacation days today. Okay, what is, what is the wildest side hustle that y'all have ever had? Yes. In real life? Yeah, in real life. A little birdie told us that he used to be in an R&B group with his brother, though. Me and Bashir were in a group called Brothers. Uh, <laughs> Imagine that. Two black dudes. I group called Brothers. I did not take a lot of time with that, that name. It, it seemed cool at the time, y'all. <laughs> hey, brother. You want to sing? Hey, what should we name ourselves, brother? Um, we didn't talk Five like the 19... 19- brothers. How old are you? Think? We were not from 1978. Uh, <laughs> no. That's a, that's a cool... Jacket, brother. Um, no, it was brother, like, yeah, sure we, can't we see, were singing bro. like Shy and Boys to Men and Joe to see. How do y'all do? Kind of oh, there you Shy, go. It's like four part harmonies, though. Like, it's always yeah, man, y'all. we thought that was cool. Yeah, you they know? could sing. If people, had, if people had a coffee shop, we were there. On a Friday night, we were singing. We were, we were singing Usher songs, you know? They call us US. H E R. Like, it didn't even make sense. Everybody had a letter. US. Oh, my God. That's funny. We was up in there. All right, now. Dialu Riddle and Sultan Salahuddin are co-creators of Southside on HBO Max. Yep, One yep. more time, Chicago. Give it up for Dialu Riddle and Sultan Salahuddin. Thank you for having us. We're going into this last section of the show. Yep, yep, I can't yep. believe it's flying so fast. I know, right? As you might guess, people send us questions all the time about race. You know what I mean? They tweet at us. They email us. Uh, to help us. They ask us to deep dive with them about questions that are bothering them. Questions like, should I be saying Latinx? Does anybody really say Latinx out loud? No. Oh, should I keep my cherished lifelong friendships with the white people? who are also sometimes racist to me? I mean, that one seems kind of easy. I don't know. I don't know. Um, is it even possible to have a decolonized beauty routine? The question is like that. And we get stuff like this so often that we decided to dedicate whole episodes to answer them. And that's how we came up with Ask Code Switch, which has been one of our favorite segments ever since we started the show. Like, think car talk, but instead of janky carburetors that go, <clears throat> you got racist uncles who go, well, why can they say it? But I can't. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like that. Those episodes tend to have a theme, and obviously the tonight, tonight the theme is going to be 
home in Chicago. We didn't want to just helicopter in because this is not like this is not our territory. So we called in a huge favor from someone whose job it is to literally answer questions from listeners about Chicago. She's a reporter on WBEZ's Curious City podcast. Please give it up for Curious City podcast. <laughs> Please welcome to the stage Adriana Cardona Magigan. Welcome, 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 Adriana. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, bienvenidos. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight, Adriana. Chicago is your adopted home, and your job, deep diving into the public's questions about this city, has made you an expert on so much of how this place works. All right, but I guess now we're going to go to our first listener question. Yeah. And some of those question askers are here in the audience tonight. Hi, Code Switch. I'm Manjo Sahu from Zionsville, Indiana. My question for you is, how did Devon Avenue become a primarily Indian community? So Devon Avenue on the north side is the home of Chicago's Little India. Oh, we got some Devon in the house. But Adriana, the story of that corridor is way, way more complex and fascinating than that, right? Yes, so there's a strip on Devon Avenue known as Little India, but um, it actually has a big Pakistani uh, population as well. Yes, uh, according to a 2019 Pew study, uh, the Chicago uh, metropolitan area actually is, um, has the second largest Indian population and the fourth largest uh, Pakistani wow. population in the U.S. Wow. wow. Okay. But so was that strip on Devon always so Indian and Pakistani? No, actually, back in the 50s and 60s, the neighborhood was mostly Jewish. So just to get into the history a little bit, uh, I met up with several people who actually worked uh, and grew up in the neighborhood. One of them is Shirag Shah. Um, his family came here from <laughs> India back in the 80s. Uh, he actually took me uh, around Devon. So as you can see here, like a lot of the businesses on this side of, of Devon are definitely more uh, Middle Eastern, right? So there, there is a Middle Eastern grocery store over here. There is a, it's, it's Middle Eastern owned, uh, Iraqi owned uh, barbershop, right? Actually, most of the barbershops on Devon will be uh, Iraqi owned. Yeah, so Devon has become a landing point for a lot of different uh, immigrants. There's now a Rohingya center there, and there's actually been a huge wave of Afghan refugees. Wow. Okay, so why has that little Indian moniker stuck if it's not really all that Indian? So yeah, there were two kind of like big waves of migration from South Asia. The first wave was back in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. And that was made up of mostly professionals, more established South Asians, many of them who were doctors and engineers. Um, Ranjana Bhargav, uh, yes, uh, she came here in the summer of 1968. Um, it, it was, she came as part of that first wave of uh, mostly Indian immigrants. And back then she remembers like there were no Indian um, Supermarkets, there were no Indian restaurants um, on Devon, especially. And she, she and her husband had a, had a pretty hard time actually finding the types of food that they like to eat. You know, if we went to McDonald's and be a vegetarian, so we would say, Give me a hamburger without a burger. And they would look at you and they would say, What do we charge? <laughs> so they, they didn't know what to do with us. My heart. <laughs> oh my gosh. And also, a hamburger without the burger is bread and cheese and ketchup. Yeah. So I hope they gave her like 75% yeah, off also. Yeah, uh, yeah I was actually expecting that they were just going to give them this stuff for free, I guess. It's just the bread. Uh, but yeah, so... You know, um, around that time, a lot more South Asians came, and Ranjana tells me that there was this one movie theater on the north side that used to uh, play Indian movies every mm -hmm. month, uh, and that drew huge cry crowds. Um, there is also um, a, a, a sari store that opened up um, that also brought a lot of people, and then finally the Patel Brothers supermarket also yeah, arrived, so yeah. Adriana, you said there were two waves, though, of, of migration. So when was the second? Yeah, so uh, 
so in the 80s and 90s, I was a second wave, mostly non-professional relatives. Uh, by you know, like uh, they were sponsored by their family members. And Rajana says she remembers. To her, it seemed like every other taxi driver in Chicago was either Indian or Pakistani. Uh, but there were also other immigrants from South Asia that were from Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, and Bhutan. And there are some really important differences between each of these groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I know, like for example, like Pakistan is a predominantly Muslim country, and people in India are predominantly Hindu. And so the people of Devon go to different houses of worship, right? Yes, and the people I talked to in the community just kind of said that um, it's hard sometimes for some ethnic groups to, to come together. Um, by the early 2000s, like you often see in many immigrant uh, communities, a lot of those early South Asians started moving uh, to the suburbs. So the Dad Vivon uh, Street became more of a place uh, where people would shop and come down to eat, and then they would just go back home. Mm-hmm. But you know what? There is also coexistence in Devon, on Devon. Um, the other day, I was um, there interviewing some asylum, uh, asylum seekers from Venezuela who uh, were bused uh, from Texas uh, in Chicago. Right? Yeah. yeah, so uh, it was a Friday afternoon. It was a pretty pleasant night. Um, the, you know, the asylum seekers were there getting clothes and food mm-hmm. and, um, you know, they were by a church and the pastor was playing some sort of Latin music. And then at some point he started singing and, and then right across the street from them, there was this like beautiful music that also kind of like started like mixing with that, with the other Latin music and that music was coming from this Hindu temple. Let's take a listen. It was uh, really beautiful, like, just to be there um, in the midst of everything. Uh, and that's the type of diversity that you see happening on Devon Avenue today on that strip. Mm-hmm. So you can get your cormors and your koftas, and you can also get your rapists too, right? Well... For a few blacks down, I would say, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so all this diverse coexistence, and yet segregation is still a very real issue in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And that's what our next question from Oscar Eduardo Gil gets into. Oscar's question was, why is Chicago a sanctuary city, but still so segregated? So Oscar is shaking the table. Mm-hmm. And we're going to pull in one of our favorite little tools here, the explanatory comma. But just to make sure we're all on the same page about what a sanctuary city actually is, I'm going to throw it to Nicole Hallett to explain. She runs the Immigrants' Rights Clinic at the University of Chicago Law School. A sanctuary city is essentially a jurisdiction that has decided not to cooperate with federal immigration enforcement. And I think a lot of people believe that a sanctuary city, if you live there, it means that you are protected from deportation. And that's not actually the case. The federal government can still deport you if you live in a sanctuary city. What it does mean is that the city itself won't uh, facilitate that and will not assist in that. And Adriana, you spoke to some people in Chicago about their feelings about the city's sanctuary status. Yeah, so for some of the residents I spoke with over the years and like just recently, this idea of being a sanctuary town is also about coming together and welcome the stranger. Uh, We have seen this as many people, uh, even elected officials came together to kind of like uh, pull resources and help the asylum seekers. A lot of Chicagoans are proud of, you know, the city status as sanctuary city. But some residents uh, feel like being a sanctuary city comes with more obligations. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we also talked to Shanat Sobrevilla. Shanat's undocumented, and she works with a group here in Chicago called Organized Communities Against Deportations. She says that although sanctuary city implies immigrant-friendly, that's not always necessarily the case. And so we continue the same things that we see in other cities that might not call themselves sanctuary that still experience structural racism and lack of resources and hyper-policing, violent policing, um, it still exists in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So obviously, like, what kind of resources and safety are you really getting once you land in your sanctuary city, right? Like, 
Chicago is a sanctuary city, but so are places like New York and Philly and Los Angeles. You know, they all have deeply segregated school systems, right? They all have notorious police departments that target black and brown people. I mean, Chicago had a black site in your city, like where they literally disappear people. Anyway, sorry. Um, Housing is hard to find, it's really expensive. And the hypocrisy point that our question asker seems to be hinting at is that all of these sanctuary cities are all solidly democratic, all ostensibly liberal places that like to tout their diversity, yet there's like very little political will to fix any of that stuff we just mentioned. Yeah, good in theory, but not happening necessarily in practice. Mm -hmm. But remember, Oscar's question wasn't just about sanctuary, it's also about segregation. We asked Nicole Hallett about why segregation persists like this in a sanctuary city. It's fairly easy for a city to become a sanctuary city. You just have to state that you're not going to to cooperate with federal immigration enforcement and then do that. Segregation is a much thornier problem. It's it's actually very hard to figure out how to solve the problem um, of segregation. It's not just a government problem. It's private people making private decisions about where to live. And many of those Um, decisions, at least originally, were made because of policy decisions that are now decades old. Right. So the government can uh, do things like addressing the basic needs of asylum seekers, but there are other uh, policies that can actually uh, create more opportunities like, for example, bringing in mixed income housing, uh, making sure that communities are thriving. But a lot of these issues like segregation, poverty, and education, um, these are big problems that um, a lot of cities, not just Chicago, have been grappling with for years. 100%. And there's so much we've gotten into, so much we could get into, but we know we're not going to get through all of this or solve any of this tonight. We want to thank everyone who asked questions. And thank Adriana Cardona Magigat. She's a reporter for WBEZ's Curious City. I'll give it up one more time for Adriana. Thank you for having me. Thank you all. The show was produced by Christina Kala and Deepa Modisham with help from Kumari Devarajan and Joanna Pawlowska. It was edited by Dahlia Mortada. And I would be remiss if I did not shout out the rest of the Code Switch Massive. Karen Grigley-Bates, Alyssa Jong-Perry, Jess Kung, Thomas Liu, L.A. Johnson, Steve Drummond, and Verlin Williams. Our intern is Jordanos Tespazayon. Give it up for Kaina and her bands. By the way, I'm Gene Zembi. I'm B.A. Parker. I'm Lori Lizarraga. Chicago, be easy. Hi, Trey. Call someone you love this week, Chicago. Good night. Hey, y'all. I know we said goodbye, but before we go, we want to give a special thanks to Josh Newell, who is our engineer on this episode. Lorna White also helped engineer the live event. Without them, we wouldn't sound nearly as good. We also want to shout out Kaina and the Goobs, who provided live music throughout the show and played a live set for us at the Studebaker. Stay tuned for a special treat, a serenade from Kaina herself. Chicago. This song is the title track of my latest album, It Was a Home. And it has to do with wishing that I spent more time uh, appreciating my childhood home. And thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Thank you. Can I get myself in the monitor, please? Crooked view I used to walk 
from my neighbor's house up the broken stairs of earth. I couldn't get over it. I couldn't get over it. I couldn't get over it. Couldn't get over it. It was a home. It was a home. Not a hill. And that little room in the middle house is not. Everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media. This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. 